Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is part four of the Irish War of Independence series. This episode continues the story and focuses on a pivotal day, January the 19th, 1919, the day the first Doyle or independent Irish Parliament met in Dublin, and the day the ambush at Solahead Beg, often considered the opening shots of the war, took place. The episode also teases out the complex relationship between Sinn Féin and the Irish Volunteers as the latter developed into the IRA. Additional research for this episode was by the archivist and historian Sam McGrath. The sound was by Jason Looney. Additional narrations are by Aidan Crow and Therese Murray and the artwork for the series is by Keith Hines. Last week I hosted the first Q&A with Dr Brian Hanley from the History Department in Trinity College Dublin, which is exclusively available for show patrons as a podcast now at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. It was really great fun, and you can get to participate in the next Q&A by signing up at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. If you sign up there, you also get early access to ad-free episodes and episode guides as well. If you're enjoying the series, you really need to check out the posters at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. I'm getting really great feedback on those. You can check those out at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. There's also a link in the show notes below. Finally, don't forget to follow the show on socials. The handle is Irish History. That's all one word, both on Instagram and Twitter. You can find pictures of the people featured in today's episode there. The approach of Christmas 1918 was a time of cautious hope for many in Europe. World War I had ended a few weeks earlier and there was a fragile air of optimism that the continent stood on the threshold of a new age. Even in the defeated Germany, a revolution had deposed the Kaiser, leading many to hope that the victorious powers would adopt a lenient stance in the upcoming peace talks 
due to open in Paris in January 1919. However, in those weeks after the armistice had been agreed, there was already clear signs that the peace would not hold in many parts of the continent. In the Pale of Settlement, the vast borderlands of the Russian Empire that had collapsed in 1917, a series of civil wars had broken out. Meanwhile, on the far side of Europe, similar tensions were building in Ireland. Sarah Garby was one of the countless people whose life had been transformed by the war, and not for the better. Living in Sligo in the northwest of Ireland, she found herself in a country where tensions were rising rapidly as World War I came to an end. To an extent, Sarah and her actions in the weeks after the war embodied why Ireland, and indeed many parts of Europe, would not return to peace. The war had unleashed forces in many societies that could not simply disappear because the German Empire had been defeated. Sarah's experience was shaped by the fact that she was one of the many women in Ireland whose life had been interwoven with the British Army. Her husband, William Garvey, was a former soldier and, as was common in families like hers, her eldest son, Michael, had followed his father's footsteps and enlisted in the Connacht Rangers in 1910. His military career was cut short in the summer of 1911 when he was discharged after it emerged he had lied about his age. However, World War I provided Michael with another chance and he re-enlisted in the Connacht Rangers for a second time. While the stereotypical Irish experience of the war took soldiers to France or Belgium, Michael Garvey's letters home were from far more exotic locations. By January 1916, the Connacht Rangers had arrived at the mouth of the Tigris River in the Persian Gulf. From there, they moved up into modern-day Iraq with the intention of relieving a siege at the city of Kut, 200 kilometres southeast of Baghdad. However, before they reached Kut, the Rangers faced increasing resistance from Ottoman forces in the region. Then, on January the 21st, 1916, they attacked an Ottoman garrison in the town of Hanna in what was an ill-conceived and ill-judged move. The Connacht Rangers' chaplain, the Jesuit, Frederick Peel, recalled the conditions. It would be difficult to picture worse conditions. Everything was deficient. The stretchers were few, the bearers fagged out. The scene was heart-rendering. Wounded and dying, European and native, all huddled together, soaked to the skin, coated with clay. The medical arrangements were nil. The medical officers, though most devoted, were too few to cope. No one who had not seen this could believe that such things were possible. Amid these conditions reminiscent of the Western Front, Sarah Garvey's son Michael was killed. When the news reached her, nearly 6,000 kilometres away, she was bereft with grief. She did not even have the consolation of a proper funeral. Bodies were not repatriated during the First World War. Army records also indicate she did not receive any of Michael's personal effects either. The end of the war, two years later, in 1918, only served to amplify these emotions and indeed developments in Ireland would politicise Sarah's grief. On November the 14th, 1918, three days after an armistice had brought World War I to an end, Andrew Boner Law, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, rose to the dispatch box in the House of Commons and announced a general election would be held across the United Kingdom. It was due to take place five weeks later on Saturday, December the 14th. 
The announcement of this long-anticipated election, the first since 1910, triggered an upsurge in political tension and violence across Ireland, shaped by the experiences and attitudes to the First World War and the 1916 Rising. After what was a brief but bitter campaign, on election day itself, Sarah Garvey was standing on Albert Road in Sligo, close to the Royal Irish Constabulary Barracks in the town, when a group of young men parading in military formation, presumably Irish Republicans, appeared on the street. This incensed Sarah. She was no stranger to the courts before or during the war for unruly behaviour, but on this occasion she would stun bystanders. Sarah, along with her daughter Lizzie and another woman, Bridget McLaughlin, started to make their way towards the men, shouting insults and throwing rocks at them. Inside the nearby constabulary barracks, the head constable, Timothy Murphy, heard the commotion and emerged just in time to stop the three women physically attacking the young Republican. Unable to reach their target, Sarah Garvey and the others then shocked bystanders when they began to hurl obscenities and insults at their intended targets. The women's taunts and insults were considered so profane that Constable Murphy would later refuse to repeat them in open court, instead passing them in written form to the judge. While Sarah's case was put back for another hearing the following year of 1919, there was no doubt the entire affair had been political. Constable Murphy had said as much in court when he revealed Sarah and the other two women were strong supporters of one candidate standing in the election. Given her personal circumstances and the fact that she was married to a British Army soldier, it seems most likely Sarah was supporting Thomas Scanlon, the Home Rule candidate. Or perhaps she was opposed to the Republican, J.J. Clancy, who was standing for Sinn Féin. Indeed, she would not be the only woman with connections to the British Army to attack Republicans in that election. During the campaigning in the weeks before the ballot was held on December the 14th, 1918, Tensions and physical conflict between Republicans and former soldiers and their families had been one of the fault lines in what was a bitter contest. It was hardly any surprise, given the two saw the world in radically different terms. While the Republican movement had long criticised Irishmen for joining the British Army, in the previous two years this had become highly personalised. During the 1916 Rising, Republicans and British Army soldiers had fought a week-long conflict in the streets of Dublin where hundreds had been killed. This intensified opposition to the army within the Republican movement. Conversely, for Sarah Garvey and many other women with relatives in the army, the Rising was seen as an act of treachery and perhaps in Sarah's case she may well have thought the Republicans were besmirching her dead son's memory. Such highly charged emotions inevitably led to conflict. However, in the 1918 election in Ireland, issues surrounding the British Army were something of a sideshow in the overall campaign. It was questions over democracy, anti-imperialism and the right to self-determination, the very issues producing civil wars across Eastern Europe that dominated the contest. When the 1918 election was called, it was immediately apparent it was going to be a historic event. For the first time ever, all men over the age of 21 and many women over 30 were entitled to vote. The electorate had grown from 700,000 to around 2 million people. Not only was it a momentous occasion, but this made the outcome difficult to predict with so many first-time voters. This only amplified tensions around what would have been a bitter contest in any case. 
While Sarah Garvey's attempt to attack Republicans in Sligo revealed the deep divisions over the First World War in Irish society, the main issue at stake was the same one that had plagued Irish politics on and off for nearly 120 years, the future of the union between Britain and Ireland. There were three clear and distinct options open to voters. Irish unionists favoured the strongest possible links with Britain. The Home Rule Party favoured loosening the bonds with Britain through a form of self-governance within the British Empire. Then thirdly, the Republicans of Sinn Féin want a complete and full independence. The most bitter conflicts emerged between the two wings of the nationalist movement, the Home Rulers and the Republicans, in constituencies where they faced off against each other rather than between nationalists and unionists. Prior to the First World War, as we saw in previous episodes, the Home Rule Party had tightly controlled the wider nationalist vote in Ireland. However, the war and the 1916 Rising had transformed how many Irish people understood politics. The Republicans of Sinn Féin, demanding full independence, had soared in popularity. In the previous two years, they had won all six by-elections held in Ireland, and many predicted they would make major gains at the expense of the Home Rule Party in 1918. The tensions were inflamed by the fact that both parties were supported by armed organisations. While the Irish volunteers supported Sinn Féin, the Home Rulers had the support of the ancient order of Hibernians, who were more than willing to use physical force. In this heated political environment, infused with such high emotions, the results did not disappoint. They were nothing short of seismic. It was not only decisive, but proved to be the most far-reaching election of 20th century Irish history. When the people went to the polls, the results of the election were emphatic and undisputable. When the votes were counted, the Republicans of Sinn Féin had swept the boards. They had taken 73 from the 101 seats available, an impressive feat given they hadn't taken a single seat at the previous general election in 1910. The Ulster Unionist Party, representing Irish people who wanted to maintain close links to Britain, had also done well. Their potential voter base was much smaller, but they took 22 seats. They had swept the boards in Belfast, taking four of the five seats in the city. The Home Rule Party, which had been fatally damaged by the conscription crisis covered in last week's episode, were more or less finished off as a force in Irish politics. They lost 61 of their 67 seats. Indeed, the party leader, John Dillon, who had taken over on the death of John Redmond in March 1918, lost his own seat to Eamon de Valera in the constituency that had returned to Dillon since 1893. Indeed, in a quirk of the electoral system, de Valera stood in three constituencies, winning two seats, an impressive feat for a man who had spent the entire election in Lincoln Jail. This election was groundbreaking in other ways as well. Constance Markovic had stood for Sinn Féin and the 1916 veteran became the first woman ever elected to the House of Commons when she took a seat in Dublin with 69% of the vote. Meanwhile, when the election was called, many had also wondered how the Labour Party, an organisation formed by the trade union movement, would do, given numbers joining the trade union movement had increased rapidly in recent years. However, in the weeks before the election, the Labour Party took the decision to stand aside for Sinn Féin in the contest. While the results of the election in Ireland were an emphatic endorsement of Sinn Féin, the results of the election in Britain, held that same day, set the stage for a major confrontation. 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The Sinn Féin manifesto had been explicit about their demand for complete independence, while the government, re-elected in Britain, was utterly opposed. While it's difficult to envisage any circumstance where a British government would have acquiesced to Irish independence, this government was particularly hardline in its opposition. Similar to the election in Ireland, British politics had been remoulded in 1918, but in very different ways. Referred to as a khaki election, it had been fought around issues arising from the First World War and had seen very unusual alliances formed. David Lloyd George, the Prime Minister of the day, had split his own party, the Liberals. He and his supporters, including Winston Churchill, formed an election pact with the Conservative Party, with whose support Lloyd George had ruled as Prime Minister between 1916 and 1918 campaigning on a promise to adopt an extremely harsh stance with the defeated Germany at the upcoming peace talks in 1919, Lloyd George also promised major reforms at home. The results redefined the political landscape as Lloyd George's coalition destroyed his own party, the Liberals, whose vote completely collapsed. In 1910, they had taken 272 seats. In 1918, they returned with just 36 The return of Lloyd George and his Conservative allies spelled a very worrying future for Ireland. Their outlook was clearly unionist, while Irish people had voted in considerable numbers to break that same union. The growing gulf between the British government and large parts of Ireland began to take physical form as early as January 1919, when the new parliament was called. Sinn Féin candidates in the 1918 election had stood on a platform of abstentionism, meaning, if elected, they would not take their seats in the Westminster Parliament in London. Indeed, many of their MPs couldn't attend in any case because they were either in jail, like the party president Eamon de Valera, or on the run and feared arrest if they appeared in public. However, the Sinn Féin MPs, who were not in prison or on the run, made good on their promise of abstentionism. Rather than travel to the British Parliament in London, they took the first steps towards Irish independence by convening an Irish Parliament in Dublin. They invited all other MPs who had been elected in Irish constituencies, from home rulers to unionists. Predictably, both refused, but on the 21st of January 1919 in Dublin, they pushed ahead and convened a Parliament, known by the Irish word for assembly, the Doyle. Proceedings held that day were an expression of Irish independence and as such were held almost entirely in the Irish language. The term MP, which stood for Member of Parliament, was initially changed to Fiasieri Dáil Éireann and then to Chocdi Dála or TD. 
Although this first meeting lasted less than two hours, it passed some very important resolutions. First and foremost, they issued a declaration of Irish independence before establishing the framework for an independent government. They adopted a provisional constitution and passed what was called the Democratic Programme, a document which had been drafted by the leader of the Labour Party, Thomas Johnson, and edited by the Sinn Féinor, Sean T. O'Kelly. This was essentially a vision of what a new independent Ireland would look like. Influenced by Irish republicanism and socialism, it committed to helping workers and the poor, while it also subordinated the right of private property to the public good. In terms of a strategy to achieve independence, many Sinn Féin politicians at this point were very hopeful they could pursue a peaceful strategy. They were focused on the post-World War I peace talks which had opened in Paris. The US President Woodrow Wilson was the most important figure at the talks and it was believed the influence of Irish-American voters and Wilson's own support for self-determination could be decisive. In light of this, the Doyle passed what was called a message to the free peoples of the world calling for a recognition of Ireland's independence and they selected three delegates to travel to Paris to make their case. In the following days, a second closed meeting took place where the structures of this new independent government took shape. A cabinet was established with Cahal Brewer appointed as acting president while Eamon de Valera remained in prison in England. Michael Collins was appointed to the portfolio of Home Affairs. Owen McNeill to Finance, Count Plunkett to Foreign Affairs, while Richard Mulcahy was assigned to the portfolio of Defence. This cabinet would later be enlarged when Constance Markovich was released from prison and took up the position of Minister of Labour, the first woman in world history to hold a cabinet position. W.T. Cosgrave would also join this cabinet as Minister for Local Government. Ultimately, the opening of the first Doyle proved a very symbolic moment. The well-choreographed event had passed off without incident. The authorities had not tried to stop it going ahead, as some feared they might. Furthermore, the press attendance was impressive. Over 100 journalists, many of them from international news organisations, recorded the events and within days it was given front-page coverage in newspapers from New York to California. That said, this was not celebrated by all Irish people. Far from it. The Dubliner, Edward Carson, the leader of Irish unionism, had called for a strong reaction from the police even before the Doyle had met, saying, As to Sinn Féin's members, they must not come to Westminster. Their constitution forbids the taking of any oath of allegiance. Therefore, they must make some sort of show in Ireland. If they don't, they will go down. I am convinced it will fail if the government holds firm. While Carson wanted stern action, as we saw the British authorities initially did nothing, instead adopting a wait-and-see approach. However, no sooner had this meeting of the Doyle ended than the TDs were faced with their first political crisis. Sinn Féin, as we saw last week, was only one arm of the Republican movement. The other main wing was the Irish Volunteers. This militaristic organisation, while it overlapped in membership with Sinn Féin, had very different goals, and at a grassroots level, many of its members remained sceptical of politics and believed politicians would never free Ireland. They also had little interest in the Paris peace talks. They believed military action was required, and through the previous year, they had been carrying out raids to secure weapons. Indeed, on the day the Doyle met in Dublin, volunteers in South Tipperary carried out what was at the time a deeply controversial operation one that will go down in history as the beginning of the Irish War of Independence.
On the morning of January the 21st, 1919, as Sinn Féin MPs were preparing to attend the first Doyle, far from the pomp and ceremony, a small convoy left the military barracks in Tipperary town. It consisted of a horse-drawn cart carrying a shipment of gelignite and driven by two council workers. It was destined for a local quarry at a place called Solahead Beg. Given the nature of the shipment, they were accompanied by a small armed guard comprised of two members of the Royal Irish Constabulary, James MacDonnell and Patrick O'Connell. It was an unpleasant assignment for the two constables. They had to walk behind the cart for several miles in the depths of winter in cold, wet weather. To make matters worse, the horse-drawn cart moved slowly given gelignite is highly unstable in cold weather. It was after midday before they reached the vicinity of the quarry. While the journey up to this point had been uneventful, things began to change rapidly. Close to the entrance of the quarry, they heard a call from the ditch along the roadside saying, hands up, or in some tellings, halt, put your hands up, as masked men appeared on the road. Initially, the constables seemed to have thought it was some form of practical joke, but they were quickly disabused of these notions. Even if the identities of the men were unclear, the weapons they brandished confirmed what was happening. This was a raid by the Irish volunteers. Seamus Robinson, the volunteer commanding the operation, later recalled what happened next. Others involved in the raid, as you'll hear, include Tim Crow, Patrick Dwyer, Dan Breen, Sean Hogan and Sean Tracy, many of whom would become household names in the coming years. The Belfast-born Robinson remembered. The Royal Irish Constabulary were behind the cart and as they appeared opposite the gate, the high-pitched challenge, hands up, rang out. Before the first sound had time to re-echo, Dwyer and I were over the ditch and grabbing the reins. The R.A. seemed to be at first amused at the sight of Dan Breen's burly figure with nose and mouth covered with a handkerchief. But with a sweeping glance, they saw his revolver and Dwyer and me. At this point, the events escalated rapidly. The constables reached for weapons, one lurching down to take cover behind the cart, the other standing on the road, fumbling with his gun. Neither would get a chance to fire, as Robinson explained. The two shots came from Tracy and Tim Crow. Those shots were the signal for general firing. This created chaos. The gelignite was drawn by horses, which took fright. It was very possible that the explosives could detonate, killing everyone on the road. Robinson remembered. I only had my left hand free to catch the reins. And when the shots rang out, it became frantic. It reared up on its hind legs and tried to break away. The reins slipped about two feet through my hand, but I recovered my grip near the bit when the horse's feet reached the ground again. At this point, the two constables were dead or dying. Dan Breen and Sean Hogan climbed onto the cart and Breen, remaining standing, took the reins and began to whip the horses wildly. Robinson, watching on, remembered. Breen, standing up with the reins, whipped the horse and away they went clattering down the road. I had thought that Dan Breen, who had worked the railway, would have known the danger of jolting gelignite that was frozen. The weather was very cold. Hogan told me afterwards that he tried to caution Dan, but either Dan couldn't hear him, or he put no seam in it. The gelignite was hidden in a safe place by Tim Crow, but those who had participated in the attack were now wanted men, and some of them would be very easily identified. Sean Tracy was from the locality, and had been involved in the Republican movement for years, and had already served time in prison. Sean Hogan and Dan Breen were also known to the police. In light of this, they set off 
on foot for Tincurry House, 20 kilometres away, where a prominent Republican activist, Marion Tobin, a widow with several children, gave them shelter. Before Christmas, I interviewed Marion's grandniece, Annette, about her life. You can hear that in the episode, The Forgotten History of the Women of Care. While they had achieved their objectives, having escaped with the gelignite, these events at Solahed Beg proved deeply controversial at the time. While they would later be regarded in popular lore as the opening shots of the Irish War of Independence, they were not recognised as such at the time. Indeed, they sparked a major controversy inside and outside the Republican movement. Despite the fact it would become central to popular narratives on the War of Independence, there was never a clear understanding of what the precise plan or intention at Solo Head Beg had been. The two policemen were dead, while the two council workers were too traumatised to provide a useful account of the events. This only left the memories of those who had been directly involved. To complicate matters, the Irish volunteers present that day would give very different versions of the day's events. Dan Breen, who participated, would later claim the attack had been much more than just a raid to get explosives. He would claim that he, and Sean Tracy in particular, had wanted to kill the policemen with the intention of starting a war. Breen later claimed, We thought about carrying out some big attack or the other that would serve to start the ball rolling. We expected that there'd be an escort of about six armed police and we have the full intention not alone of taking the gelignites they were escorting, but also shooting down the escort as an assertion of the national right to deny the free passage of an armed enemy. Breen also bemoaned the fact that there had only been two constables present, believing if he had killed more members of the Royal Irish Constabulary, it would have had a bigger impact. Although the two men would later come to develop a mutual animosity, Seamus Robinson forwarded a similar idea. However, this was not how all those involved saw the events. Patrick Dwyer, who was also present, would directly contradict Breen and Robinson when he said, It was, as far as I was aware, definitely the intention to hold up the escort, disarm them and seize the gelignite without bloodshed if possible. Ultimately, given the historical record is contradictory, we will never be able to state with certainty what their intention was that day. However, far more important is the actual effect it had. As we shall see, while it didn't trigger an immediate war, it was widely criticised in the following days. In the days after the attack at Solahed Beg, the volunteers' action drew down condemnation, particularly from the Catholic Church. The Freeman's Journal reported... Archbishop Harty in Thurles Cathedral, referring to the shooting of the two policemen at Solahed Beg, said, I condemn the crime as an offence against the laws of God, as an offence against the fair name of our county. Monsignor Arthur Ryan, parish priest in Tipperary, at Mass on Sunday read a letter from Archbishop Harty referring to the shooting at Solahed Beg of Constables M'Donnell and O'Connell as cold-blooded murders for which there could be no justification and which brought a stain on the fair name of Tipperary. Monsignor Ryan said they fired as if their victims had no immortal souls in their bodies, as if there was no judgment to follow, as if they were dogs, not men. While clerical condemnation was to be expected, the attack also raised criticism from what might be considered unexpected sources as well. The general headquarters of the Irish volunteers criticised the action. Richard Mulcahy, the chief of staff at the time, would later go as far as to call it tantamount to murder. While such an opinion is somewhat critical, 
it presumably reflected Mokahi's irritation that he had not been consulted. In fact, Salahad Beg and the reactions to it highlighted what was a major issue for the Irish volunteers. As we saw in the last episode, Ireland was gradually sliding into warfare as attacks had increased in frequency, but these were taking place in an uncoordinated fashion. The multiple attacks through 1918 and now Salahed Beg had all been local initiatives without any consultation or prior agreement with the headquarters staff based in Dublin. While the volunteers were morphing into an organisation known as the IRA, it was not the centralised, finely tuned machine it's often portrayed to be. In the aftermath of Salahed Beg, the leadership of the volunteers had to respond and try to reassert their authority, but also tackle the thorny issue of what was the exact relationship between them and Sinn Féin. On January the 31st, 1919, the volunteers printed a communique in Anthogluck, the organisation's newspaper, which retrospectively gave cover to Salahed Beg. The communique read, Every volunteer is entitled, morally and legally, when in the execution of his military duties to use all legitimate methods of warfare against the soldiers and policemen of the English usurper, and to slay them if it is necessary to do so in order to overcome their resistance. He is not only entitled, but bound to resist all attempts to disarm him. In this position he has the authority of the nation behind him, now constituted in concrete form. It also argued that the Doyle, which had met on January the 21st, was now the legitimate government of Ireland and that the volunteers were the army of that government. To this effect, in the following months, the volunteers, who were increasingly referring to themselves as the Irish Republican Army, or IRA, a term I will be using from here on, were asked to swear an oath of allegiance to the Doyle. This technically resolved some of the problems, but in reality, internal tensions within the Republican movement remained. Many companies of the IRA viewed the world of politics as tainted and to an extent beneath them, so they were slow to subordinate themselves to the Doyle, and if they did, in some cases it was half-hearted. To an extent, the distrust was somewhat mutual. In early 1919, many members of Sinn Féin were not comfortable with the armed conflict many members of the IRA favoured. As we saw earlier in the episode, during this period, Sinn Féin were focused on trying to win international support for Irish independence at the Paris peace talks. What was portrayed as the murder of two policemen did not help this. The outcome of all this was that a lack of a clear strategy across the Republican movement remained, something that was complicated by the fact that even inside the IRA, local units maintained a strong level of independence from the headquarters staff. This was clearly illustrated a few weeks after Salahed Beg when Seamus Robinson formulated a radical proposal. He wanted to publish a manifesto across South Tipperary, threatening to execute anyone who cooperated with the British authorities, from soldiers and policemen through to members of the public who sat on juries. Such an extreme measure was rejected by the headquarters staff. However, Robinson seems to have ignored this because posters of the manifesto were still published across South Tipperary. Nevertheless, despite these problems, which were somewhat inevitable given the rapid pace of events and growth of Sinn Féin and the volunteers, the achievement of the Republican movement in January 1919 were impressive. They had convened a meeting of the first independent Irish Parliament and they were starting to coordinate the slow descent into war that had begun as early as 1917. To conclude the show, we will look at two minor IRA operations in the following weeks to give a sense of how the conflict remained at a very low level, even after Salahed Beg, which is often referred to as the opening shots of the war.
While political tensions were escalating in Irish society, it's worth bearing in mind that the entire population was grappling with another crisis during these months. Sarah Garvey, who we met at the start of the episode, was presumably outraged by the election result and the subsequent declaration of independence in the first Doyle. However, she would not live long enough to see where this would lead. Around February the 4th, 1919, she fell ill and began to develop flu-like symptoms. Her condition deteriorated when she also developed pneumonia and she died on February the 11th that year. Sarah was one of the 25,000 Irish people or so who died from what was known as the Spanish flu, a pandemic that devastated Ireland in those years. In spite of this, political tensions continued to increase in Ireland. On February the 24th, a member of the IRA, Patrick Casey, was killed in Kerry in an attempt to rob a gun from a gamekeeper on the estate of the Earl of Kenmare. Then just a few weeks later, Alfred Pearson was killed in a raid on his home in Dublin in a somewhat unusual incident. The full details remain obscure, but Pearson encountered two women who claimed they were unfamiliar with him on Ballybock Bridge in the north inner city. They went for a drink, after which he invited them back to his house. While they were at the house, an armed man entered and robbed a Winchester rifle. However, he was disturbed in the act by Pearson, who was shot dead in a subsequent tussle. What exactly happened was never fully explained or understood. Reports that scouts, presumably members of the Republican youth organisation Nafina, were spotted in the locality. However, how they knew the gun was there is unclear. It's also unclear what, if any, role the two women had played in the event. They stated they had not known Pearson prior to meeting him that evening. There seems to have been some rumours that they were sex workers and one of the women, Kate Dorn, felt the need to provide a testimony from her employer to her character. That said, a woman of this name served seven days in prison in 1918 for soliciting. In those two months of February and March, there was another operation by the IRA, one that had been meticulously planned and far more audacious. This had been underway since the first meeting of the Doyle the previous year. Two absent members were marked present. These were Michael Collins and Harry Boland. This was done to mask the fact that the two were already on their way to England, where plans were afoot to free the Sinn Féin president, Eamon de Valera, from prison. The story of his remarkable escape from Lincoln Jail is the focus of next week's episode. Until then, Sloan. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.